Good evening, everyone. I'm Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for coming. Just a quick reminder, if you're new to the channel, hit subscribe. Don't forget to click that notification bell so you're notified whenever we go live. We're constantly doing cross streams and adding new shows to the channel. Next week, we'll be doing our bi-monthly news show with Matt and David of Left Reckoning. Uh, also, just last night, we had another episode of TIR Presents the Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert, where we discussed race, gender, and the Democratic Party. Make sure to check that out if you haven't. Uh, if you want to be a part of shows like the Mau Mau Hour Live, there's only one way. You have to become a patron. For our patrons, we have the exclusive Champagne Room, where we have more crazy uncensored fun, but also we take deeper dives into the conversation we had in the first hour. This show that you are watching right now is pre-recorded because our guests couldn't make it for our regularly scheduled streaming time. So we'll probably be in the chat um, when the show airs live because we will be doing a live champagne room. Uh so definitely stick around for that. Also, Jean Bajlan of TIR fame has a new article in Jacobin about the events going on in Iran. So please check that out. Uh, wherever you're watching or listening to this show, there should be links in the description to that piece. But the big news, the most important thing to discuss is the live show. October 23rd at the Telegram Ballroom. Tickets are on sale now. Wherever you're listening or hearing this show, there are links. There will be links in the comments. There will be links in the chat. There's links in the description. Two tickets for the live show. Give them an argument. Left Reckoning. And, of course, this is Revolution Podcast. We'll be live and in person with a slew of other guests. That being said, all that out of the way, let me bring in the man of the Mau Mau Hour, the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat who's not here, to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> it's always weird. It's always weird when we do these because it's almost like you're in a studio doing it alone. Um, the only thing I can compare it to is if you ever have to do music in front of a studio audience like you're doing some sort of tv show um it's the worst thing ever because those people didn't come to see you right and uh and so they're kind of looking at you like when is this bs going to be over so we can you know laugh at these mediocre jokes from from the tonight show guy so that is kind of what this is like we don't have that uh i wouldn't say call and response but definitely there's a conversation that we definitely have with our our uh, viewing audience that we do miss whenever we do these pre-recorded shows. But I'm excited for this show because we were talking about this show a few weeks ago when Alex was on about doing this and, uh, and he challenged us. I feel like, like I'll be, I'll be the Brazil guy. You into Brazil? You want a Brazil guy? I'm your guy. Say hello I'm here right now. Brazil guy. I'm your guy. I'm here right now, guy. Hey, hey, Bison. Uh, Alex and I, if you're if you're unfamiliar, Alex has been on the show. This is be his third time. 
go back and listen to the first episode because Alex and I on air actually talk about why you never, ever order a hamburger in Brazil. <laughs> they have great food. There's a lot of things to love about Brazil. Burgers? Not one of them. As a matter of fact, just don't get a burger outside of North America. Just don't do it. Just I don't know. You can't get a burger anywhere outside of North America? Look, man, I told you about the time I tried to get nachos in the UK, right? That sounds like a bad mix of an idea off the top of the head. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't thinking it was post-show in Bath. We were at some pub. It felt like it was a good idea. I learned my lesson. I learned my lesson. No Mexican food past Texas. Sorry, New York. I just don't trust you. I just we have good Mexican food in Florida, man. Uh, I won't trust you either. I'll eat your Cuban food. Well, I don't think all Mexican food will compare to Californian Mexican cuisine. Also, and keep in mind, I'm in Mexico too right now, so. And that as well. If if it costs more than a dollar, I'm like, look, you guys are too high with your inflationary prices. No comment. <laughs> well, hey, the serious talk, all jokes aside, the elections in Brazil are going on, or the runoff is about to happen at the end of the month. It seemed to be a foregone conclusion that former President Lula Ignacio da Silva would win his second go-round, but not so fast. Jair Bolsonaro is doing better in the polls, better in the, with the votes than many of us in the states definitely suspected. So to discuss this current status of Brazilian politics, please welcome co-host of the Afa Bunga Bunga show and co-writer of the end of the end of history, Alex Aculi. Hello. Thank you for having me back as well. Uh, oh. I, I should say that there are there are um, other Brazilian guys available there are other but i i would like to say if you have you know if you want the highest standards of objectivity <laughs> i am your brazil burger guy at the very least. And, and on food in general i would say so um, i'm your guy for that wow yeah uh, yes thank you for coming on and jason has been looking forward to this show for a long time as well as i have because i know that you're going to bring us quite quite the analysis of all things brazil in a very cogent cogent facts fashion fashion but i'm going to get out of the way because i know jason who's visited the country has a lot more passion behind the questions he wanted to ask but i had a basic question that might seem a little too rudimentary but if you can answer it for me i appreciate it how do you explain some of the electoral challenges lula faced in the most recent election that were not factors in his prior victories. I mean, you know, Brazil is a pretty different place to what it was in the 2000s, in part shaped by Lula's period in office, um, which saw, you know, high growth, but also saw probably a growing individualization of society, the growth of uh, evangelicals, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about. Um, and, you know, a right wing wave, which really emerged at, uh, as of 2013 and crested 
from you know 2015-16, including you know the parliamentary coup that happened, which uh, saw the impeachment of Juma Hussefi and uh, you know the introduction of a very harshly neoliberal program by her successor, her ex-vice president. Um, so you know it's, it's a very different it's a very different um, Brazil that that existed then. You know, and I guess we'll can talk about some of the continuities and the changes that have that have happened over that period. But you know, Lula now is to a certain extent kind of stands alone. You know, to the to the extent that uh, he's always dependent a little bit on him and his charisma and his stature. Um, now it is ever more so, I think, and that applies to kind of the Brazilian left as a whole. And you don't think Dilma Rousseff had the same uh, charisma as, as uh, Lula, even though she I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, don't think is, right? As, as, as literally a fighter prisoner. Yeah. And she's, a, I think she's a good kind of, probably a good behind the scenes kind of organizer and head knock or whatever, but in politics requires a lot of, you know, just at an institutional level there in Congress, in between the institutions, a lot of, uh, at the very least, you know, palm greasing even, and that that kind of persuasion that is necessary to get anything passed was something that Juma very much didn't have. And I mean, you know, I, I, this is hardly, this would be, I think, a universally acknowledged statement. I don't think you could find a very single well, person actually. in Brazil who would say Juma or equally charismatic as Lula. I mean, that's, you know, um, so. It's been pretty well documented that she was just tough to deal with. Yeah, yeah, effectively, yeah. Um, so, but you know, Lula considered it his greatest success to get her elected, which it should actually, in the context of this conversation we're just having, sounds like a terrible slight uh, on her. But that isn't the way he intended it, or the way I intended to say it either. It was just more the fact that she was pretty much unknown, and he still got her, you know, reelected, or rather, got her elected as his successor and reelected then four years further on. So. Um, that is, I think, a fairly remarkable success. And she was in power during the World Cup in the Olympics, and there was all that build, but the the build out, which ended up kind of being an economic disaster for the country. Yeah, and she was booed. Uh, might remember, you know, during the World Cup, and especially uh, during the 2016 Olympics. Now, of course, we should remember that, uh, and you know, that by that point, she'd already been impeached. To be fair, um, or the, the the first round as it were, of her impeachment had been then confirmed it in August that year, so just after the Olympics finished. But, um, you know, the, the important thing to come back to, and which I always try to emphasize, um, I'm not the only one, but I think not enough of the left even is, is cognizant of this. In fact, there's a tendency to sweep on the rug. Let me say what I'm going to say, not to be kind of oblique and about it. In June protests, which is known as the June Days Brazil, where there was a massive... Uh, uprising effectively in all major Brazilian cities, mill streets, which in, started off, in, you know, in kind of a small way uh, as protests against rising bus fares. Police responded heavy handedly. Loads of people more came out on the street. Uh, then a journalist lost their eye. And of course, you know, when some kind of, uh, you know, the kind of typical kind of nice white middle class person uh, with a professional career, you know, gets hurt by the police, then suddenly, you know, it brings out uh, swathes more people. Because then it's, um, so, you know, it's no longer being, it's, real. it's no longer able to be treated as like, oh, these are kind of some marginal leftists or whatever, troublemakers who are doing this, you know, this, this affects all of us, right? Um, and that was huge. That was a, a, a really important moment. And, and in some ways, the, if not the end, at least the beginning of the end of the, of the Brazilian New Republic, which, um, you know, has existed since the mid 80s. 
And, and that's a hugely important moment because those energies were very real, very much in search of a more of, of effectively democratizing democracy in Brazil. And what resulted in after that was the fact that the new right, which had been rising kind of uh, around that time, you know, a kind of right which wasn't institutional, it was stuff that was happening on YouTube and whatever, was able to very much channel that energy mm. of, 20, of June 2013 in a right wing, narrowly focused on anti-corruption, um, which ended up, you know, no one's for corruption, obviously, um, <laughs> but, there, but there's different ways to respond to corruption. And one might be one for reform, but a more structural understanding of what uh, what are the conditions that create corruption in Brazil? Um, and we can go into that, you know, in a little bit if we want to. But uh, what actually happened was a very moralistic one, which saw the PT as somehow this, you know, um, and then, you know, Lula and Juma as the kind of um, brains behind corruption itself. And there was a massive corruption scandal that emerged in, in the following year, in 2014-15, um, which was one of the largest corruption scandals ever revealed, probably, you know, anywhere uh, in terms of the, the sums involved and so on. So it's natural that the party in government that had been in government since January 20, January 2003 would be targeted by that. So, you know. Don't think it's like, you know, oh, well, hands off the PT, you know, they're, they're the good guys here. You know, they they made their bed. And and so, you know, to a certain extent, one would expect that they would uh, be the target of that corruption, a target of, of popular anger. Um, but what ended up happening, of course, was this very moralistic sort of agenda. It was a kind of huge moralistic spasm almost in, in Brazil, um, which very much favored the right. And that paved the way for Bolsonaro. So why June ignored? Um, why, and in fact, it's on the left to so many want to, um, you know, somehow ignore it or condemn it, one or the other. And the reason is that they read history backwards and see whether it's Bolsonaro, Juma's impeachment, um, and the general, um, you know, anger and hatred against the PT as being, um, you know, as being a necessary consequence. Uh, of of the June 2013 protests, and that isn't the case. You know, there was there was a lot of contingency involved, um, and it could have gone perhaps in a different way. And I think more importantly, I think you know this is a show called This Is Revolution, I suppose. So um, you know this is a good place to say this. But you know, if we want at the very least a political revolution, if not you know a social revolution, because I don't think that was on the cards. But a political revolution was in some ways on the cards. You know, in that period, and that would if that happens against the institutional left in the form of PT, mm -hmm. or if PT is unable to able to somehow channel that energy and respond very much to those demands and respond in a radical way, then so be it. You know, then it, then that revolution would happen um, at, in some way against the PT or or in spite of the PT and not with it. So you know, uh, a lot of the the left want therefore to to ignore that ignore that reality, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we can maybe, I, I know you want to maybe talk a little bit about the uh, pink wave, you know, across Latin America. I think it all, I think it's all kind of, yeah, I think it's all. But Chile is a good case, uh, Chile is a good case here. So maybe we can come back to that because what's just happened in Chile yeah. is, is, is an interesting sort of uh, similarity. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that, and the point that I always repeatedly make is that if you understand, if you want to understand Brazil now, and I've been making this point for, you know, eight years or whatever. But if you want to understand Brazil now, you have to, at the very least, go back to, to 2013 to, to understand it. 
because it, that was the beginning of Brazil's kind of perma crisis from which it hasn't emerged. Alex, let me ask you a question. Does the new right factions you're talking about exist outside of the framework of the traditional bourgeois parties that exist in Brazil? Yeah, in fact, and I mean, that's a really good question because what the rise of this new right has done, and, and I should be clear that this new right was not Bolsonarista at the beginning. In fact, Bolsonaro was uh, hadn't become a kind of standard bearer, um, yeah, it's kind of moralistic nationalist right, uh, you know, as a standard bearer of anti-corruption. That was what he was, that was the kind of... Uh, slogan that he was elected on effectively um so he wasn't in the he was i mean he was you know a, a, a kind of an irrelevant congressman and he he was he, he was a congressman for seven terms in a row um pretty relevant for a lot of it and it was only around 2015 or something where he felt oh hang on there's an opportunity for me here and was able to really surf that so so let me just kind of spell out who the actors are we're talking about here right so we have the kind of traditional mainstream Right, bourgeois parties, uh, which Pascal. Within that, I think you can break it up between the morass of clientelist parties who are just vehicles for pork spending. They have no real ideology, but are obviously by default conservative. You know, Brazil, we're dealing with like 30 parties or something, 28 mm -hmm. parties in Congress, depending on which Congress, right? So it's extremely fragmented. So it's kind of hard to if I don't say enough party names here, I'm only saying it because I don't want a, this to become a sort of alphabet soup <laughs> because it becomes even harder to follow, I think. But we, so you have this morass of, 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 of parties, chief amongst them, the MDB, the Movement for Brazilian Democracy, which used to be the official opposition to the, to the dictatorship within Congress, right? To the tolerated um, opposition. So let's just use them as a sort of, um, shorthand for the for this whole lot. So the MDB. You also then have the only kind of pole of a more ideological center right, which was the PSDB, which held the presidency um, through the through the 90s, from 94 to 2000. Um, excuse me, from uh, 96 to 2002, and that was um, and that was a party which was previously kind of social democratic in fact that's its name it's the brazilian social democratic party and which was played a large role in being a kind of um, more centrist opposition to the dictatorship and uh it then became increasingly a, a kind of neoliberal center-right party and that was the main ideological right you know in in all these sequences of elections through the 90s and 2000s it was the pt the workers party against this psdb and the psdb were the big devil effectively on the left right that was the right there was a whole bunch of other you know these small corrupt parties and the mdb and so on but the psdb was the real ideological enemy and certainly at the presidential level that's that these were the two main center right center left parties then you have this new right which emerges you know it emerges as of you know 2013 onwards and this new right is extra institutional it's sort of an anti-system right um, and that's before Bolsonarismo kind of emerges as a as a real factor, you know, this this movement behind Bolsonaro um, to be president in 2018 and then his period in office. So um, is this new right the same as the kind of mainstream bourgeois parties? No. And actually what is most interesting and, and is often missed out in discussions about Brazil 
and about the 2018 election and this election just now is that the biggest losers of this right-wing wave in Brazil have not been the PT. The biggest mm. losers of this right-wing wave have been the PSDB, the main traditional center-right neoliberal party. That was a lot of words, a lot of adjectives. I'm sorry, but you know, <laughs> the, 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 the kind of main party of the Brazilian bourgeoisie, especially of its kind of um, more advanced sectors of you know finance, for example, of, of kind of business. If you go to the kind of business in Sao Paulo, you know, th that's who they're supporting, right? Um, and that main kind of pro-business party has been, has just been defeated in such a severe way, uh, has, for example, lost the governorship of Sao Paulo, the Brazil, you know, and just to put this into context for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Brazil, you know, Sao Paulo ha is the size of the UK with a population the size of Spain's. So, you know, it's a big, important place, right? Um, and it lost the governorship of Sao Paulo, which has been its hardcore base and which it held for 27 years. It has now lost it. It's the number of congressmen it has in, in the lower house and the number of, uh, you know, members, uh, members of the lower house that the PSDB now has is 13 out of a Congress of 513, Whoa. right? So it's just been obliterated. Just to give, just to give a kind of comparison, uh, PSOL, which is the Party of Socialism and Liberty, which is a kind of uh, wing offshoot of the PT, but which didn't have the kind of working class social base that the PT did. Is it similar um, to PSL in the States? Uh, it, I'm, I'm not sure I follow. Um, There's a PSL in the States that uh, is it, it's an offshoot of the Trotskyist faction. OK, no, the P, PSOL is a, is a bit different because, I mean, it was an offshoot of the Workers' Party, which it was a party of currents. I mean, it remains a party of currents with kind of in it with um kind of more you know center left liberal you know left liberal types and so on um intellectuals and whatnot i mean it was you know mainly led by intellectuals and politicians as a breakoff from pt um and that party now has 12 congressmen oh. so that this small offshoot of the pt has almost the same number of congressmen as does main pro-business party <laughs> of the center right of, of brazil right so that's been completely obliterated so i think that's that's dan how the not just the kind of um you know center point of the political spectrum in brazil has shifted right but that that has resulted in the obliteration of the the kind of main center right party and how things have just shifted behind bolsonarismo and how many of their voters of the traditional center rights voters swung behind Bolsonaro um, and now kind of still reside there effectively. And that's and just just to give it a comparison again, like you know, in the US it's a little bit it's a little bit similar in, insofar as you know the conservatives um, of the <laughs> of the Republican Party. Um, you know, that they're that all these kind of mainstream conservatives were blown out by Trump, and now the Republican Party is basically Trumpist. Right? right. Of course, that in the Brazilian context is happening across various different parties um, in this space of, of between parties and, and across all these different promiscuous and people jump ship all the time. The story is what's happened in the U.S., except in the U.S. it's happened all within the Republican Party. Um, but I, I think the analogy there is close enough that it's, you know, that it's worth putting it in those terms. I never thought it was a fair comparison to call Bolsonaro the Trump of the tropics because I feel that like is not. That is not. This was my only. This is my only like point where I say, yeah, U.S. and, and Brazil kind of the same in that case. But, yeah. No. I, I I've I've always felt that you know he actually has an ideology. 
unlike hmm. Donald Trump, who's just. Do you think he's more dangerously operationalized? Yeah, Alex. Um, that's a good question. I think there's the question of him and his own organizations and the context of Brazil. Starting with the easier point, which is the context of Brazil, Brazilian democracy is much weaker. Um, it's much less consolidated. And the institutions of state, the deep state and so on, are not resistant to Trump and Trumpism in the way that they are in the US. So, you know, there was no chance of no risk of a, of a Trump-led coup in the US. He didn't have the armed forces with him, broadly speaking. In Brazil, it's a much more precarious situation. Um, so I think that's firstly important. Secondly, is it more, you know, is, is more organized than Trumpism? It's hard to say because it's the, the political structures and political systems are so different. But I would say that this election has shown that Bolsonaro and the whole machine of the right, the far right, is way more organized and, and several steps ahead of the left. So a lot of this is kind of uh, digital politics, right? It's media and so on. But this is important in a country where most of the country is on WhatsApp. You know, um, so most people have mobile phones connected to the Internet. Um, and so large swathes of the working class and poor do as well. And they're on WhatsApp. Everyone's on WhatsApp. You do business on WhatsApp. Everything's on WhatsApp in Brazil. Right. So in that context, the rights organization and ability to just spew out memes, claims, all these things um, via WhatsApp and then other social media, including a, a kind of very lively and active right wing uh, YouTube ecosystem as well. Um, makes it far more organized and um, at a kind of more, I want to say more concrete level, but a kind of more institutionalized level, um, not just WhatsApp, there is the fact that Bolsonaro is able to get his uh, people down ballot elected, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what the 2022 result has shown. And, and, the, and there was actually a moment on Sunday watching the election results come in where I was like, ah, okay, this is going to be a lot tighter than, than we expect. Uh, and the reason for that was is that loads of Bolsonaristas down ballot were getting elected, um, you know, without needing a second round, you know, in governor's elections or you know, for senators and so on. Um, and so it's proved resilient um, in part because what you've had is um, what I've called an authoritarian restoration in Brazil. I wrote this kind of very long, too long, far too long um, essay <laughs> in Jacobin uh, two years ago, basically making the case that what you have is the kind of Bolsonar Bolsonarismo was based on several different factors, right? You have the kind of evangelical bloc, you have the military, you have the sort of um, anti-corruption warriors, you know, and, and consistently anti-corruption in any sense by the way but you know uh, anti-corruption warriors um and then you had like his business class support um what, then you also have what i've mentioned already this kind of corrupt clientelist uh right who just squat in congress the mdb right um in brazil it's called the big center the saint um if, I, if we're okay with using that word then i'll keep saying saint mm -hmm. um and so is that, that Saint Throne, which again most of it traces its uh, traces its heritage to um, being the dictatorship's party within Congress. So you know the kind of official dictatorship party in Congress, um, civilian you know civilian but pro pro military dictatorship, and there to be in government to be close to power and to get pork spending right to get pork barrel spending sent their way. 
what you've had over Bolsonaro's period in office is a fusion between these forces. So you have the kind of the military and the evangelical bloc fusing with this um, supposedly kind of non-ideological um, non-ideological parties. In Brazil, they're actually called physiological parties to distinguish them <laughs> from ideological parties. They're physiological because they just make up part of the body of, of Congress, right? Um, and they're in every government, right? So it doesn't matter who's in government, who wins the presidency. These guys, these parties are just always in within the government, which is why it makes it so unwieldy and so difficult to govern, in fact, because you've got to give these people scraps, fairly chunky, meaty scraps all the time. Um, you've got to keep them happy. Otherwise, who knows, you might get impeached. So anyway, I, I've kind of I've kind of rambled on a little bit in, in, in giving this answer to and to a question which I don't even remember what it was. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about the evangelical faction. Yeah, well, I mean, we, I mean, should, we, should I go into that a little bit in more depth? But uh, I, yeah, I think it's important because where is that faction? Where is the evangelical faction before? So Lula's first term, let's say, it, um, it was it was marginal. It was small, you know. So y you have these mega churches, and then you have a huge ecosystem of smaller evangelical churches. Mm -hmm. The important, the most important point, the headline is. The, the the number of evangelicals has massively grown. So, you know, in the 80s, you had maybe 8% of the population be evangelical, you know, a, a really small minority in a country which was pretty much entirely Catholic um, and, you know, of different, different degrees. And so you have the kind of, and so much of Brazilian culture was kind of derived from Catholicism, whether it's carnival and all the kind of I'm trying to translate a word which you'd use in Portuguese, but sluttery, effectively, of carnival, the the, the beautiful, you know, fucking in the streets of carnival, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, cath as much kind of part of the kind of Catholic culture of Brazil as um, the Marty parts Moore. of the Brazilian far right, which were, in, you know, integralist or Opus Dei aligned or whatever, right? So Brazil is a kind of Catholic country across the political spectrum. You had being a major part of, you know, the kind of base, um, kind of grassroots Catholic communities were a major part of setting up the Workers' Party. There was uh, the Theology of Liberation, which was a major force behind um, opposition to the dictatorship and to setting up the Workers' Party. Um, so, you know, Brazil was a Catholic. Um, and over the past decades, Catholic, uh, evangelical Christianity, um, of which maybe half is kind of Pentecostal or neo-Pentecostal, um, perhaps even more, um, has grown massively, right? So now... We don't have official figures because Brazil hasn't done a census. Um, it did a census in 2010. It was meant to do a 20, census in 2020 um, because of budget cuts. Insane Chicago boy economy minister. Uh, a census has not happened. And this is just one of the such. This is a little bit of it. It just makes me so angry. One of the most basic functions of a state to just know how many people are in there, mm -hmm. <laughs> how many people are in the country and how they break down. Um, has not been done. So I, you know, that's the kind. How do you budget? If if you want exactly, <laughs> if you want, if you want, if if you want to talk about the kind of uh, extreme edge of of neoliberalism, which doesn't even kind of want to make things work, just wants to wear down state institutions. This is a, a great example because it's just such a basic thing. So anyway, because of that, we don't know how many evangelicals there actually are in the country, but estimates say it might be around thirty three percent. And obviously, the number of Catholics has fallen as Brazil has become polarized as well, and more and more people feel 
comfortable in declaring themselves have, to have no religion. So kind of the latest estimate, something like 10% no religion, 33% uh, evangelical, and then Catholic is maybe 60%. Um, it's not, those numbers add up, they do not add up, maybe around 50% Catholic. So, you know, by 2030, by the next time there should be a census, um, there's a widespread expectation that evangelicals will outnumber Catholics. Then it's a change to the composition and fabric and structure of Brazilian society uh, that I don't think it can be understated. Uh, you know, and it plays out in, in all sorts, it plays out in a social conservatism with regards to homosexuality, for example, gender relations and so on. Um, and of course, there's all the kind of culture war stuff around, you know, opposition to so-called gender ideology, you know, the idea that kind of leftists are trying to make your kids trans or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, something which might actually have some basis to it in somewhere like the UK and maybe to a certain extent the US, but in Brazil that doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit imported from the US, kind of confected. But anyway, um, be that as it may, it has. there's a definitely a kind of reactionary wave, which um, I did emphasize in one of the things I wrote in for, for Unheard as a sort of weird election preview I did, focusing on this evangelical question, is that Brazil is not um, a traditionalist society, not now. Um, so this social conservative wave is not a product of a tradition right of kind of um homophobia for example it's it's very much a kind of new thing a reaction to a broader social crisis which manifests itself in this sort of moralistic spasm and that's partly because these churches have been very well funded and very well organized and they have stepped into a void where other civic associations used to exist ones which are more inclined to the left whether it's you know trade unions uh the workers party and whatever like uh, catholic based you know grassroots community um organizing and so on um and you know in a brazil that kind of in many ways feels like it's falling apart um they have flourished and they have flourished because they offer a promise of prosperity and that your prosperity will be holy and that your holiness will provide you prosperity and vice versa and that you and a kind of it answers at least certainly for kind of amongst the Brazilian working class and poor a certain de desire for some structure and discipline and meaning you know so if you're um people are getting sucked up into drug gangs um or into the use of drugs themselves um and with, with very little future and the risk of going to prison and being beat up by cops you know the, the kind of evangelical pastor says you know here shape up um you know put on a suit work hard uh, put your head down don't take drugs get married have kids blah 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 um and and in doing so you're doing the lord's work and you're being you will find recompense for that in in you know financial success um that is pretty powerful um so it is kind of the last form of of, of kind of hope but you know it, i would emphasize how antisocial it is and i don't mean that in a kind of subjective sense of people hating other people or something like that i just mean that the concept of society somehow disappears in that that any kind of sense of collectivity is gone so you really have the individual and god and then the family um and then the market effectively and and society somehow you know kind of disappears from that vision and that makes it very hard for um for any kind of progressive forces to 
to, to combat. And that and that has become um, a very strong base for Bolsonarismo. If if the election had been decided only amongst evangelicals, Bolsonaro would have taken a first round absolute majority. Um, so you know that's that's the Brazil not only that we're dealing with now, but that we have to be thinking about in terms of that is the Brazil that we'll, we will be, that will become ever more present in a way um, in, in, the future, in, in, in the future. As this relates to Lula and the Workers' Party and the left as a whole, I think Lula speaks to an older Brazil, a Brazil that is kind of declining. And probably the best index of this is that the place where he does best is in the poorest region, in the Northeast, um, which was the center of, you know, sugar plantations and so on. It's the kind of, if you want to, an American correlate, it's like the American Deep South. Gotcha. Um, Interesting. And, he does well there. Okay. And he does well there because it's still, and this is where the comparison ends, um, is because the Brazilian Northeast, that region is... The kind of always been kind of one of the less industrialized, certainly compared to the southeast, which is the kind of the largest section of the population, mm-hmm. 40 percent or whatever. In the northeast, um, it's lots of people live in smaller towns. It's more rural and it's more Catholic. It's still the, by far the most Catholic region in Brazil. And in that sense, like and it's more traditional, I guess, in that way. And so that is the the Brazil to which Lula still speaks to in a way. It's where he's from originally. He came he came from the poor Northeast. There's mass migration again. If you want to compare it, you know, in Brazil in the kind of 60s and 70s, mass migration from the north down to the what would become megalopolises of the southeast of Rio de Janeiro, uh, São Paulo, and so on. And um, that that migration, I guess, you could compare it to the migration from the deep south to Chicago to the northeast and of, of the U.S. In, in an earlier phase of kind of industrialization in the US, right? In the kind of, um, in the first half of the 20th century. In Brazil, it happened in the 1960s and 70s as Brazil was growing very fast and the industry very was growing fast. and so people came, moved to the South to get jobs. This is like Lula's story. So Lula in some ways very much exemplifies that Brazilian story. He was, you know, came from very poor background in the Northeast, moved down to the South, got a job uh, in, you know, eventually as a metal worker, became a trade union leader. Um, and became a trade union leader, which uh, to go, I guess, a little briefly into this biography, but <laughs> which I've ended up painting, um, you know, someone who was distant from two different tendencies, I guess, when it came to the left, especially around uh, trade. Union. One was uh, kind of Trotskyists and communists, kind of um, official or not necessarily, but, but kind of, you know, Marxist parties. And on the other hand, the tradition of um state-aligned, state-supervised um, trade unions, which existed as a kind of nationalist tendency in Brazil, um, all the way back to to Vargas, who was kind of Brazil's uh, dictator for, for, for a significant period in the first half of the 20th century. And so, you know, Lula and, Lula and the PT that would come to be created in the late 70s was, um, you know, was a kind of style, it was the cold, the kind of new unionism, which kind of positioned itself neither kind of associated with um, parties of, of, of the far of the Marxist left and also was not was resistant to this well, other, um, you know, well, conservative ask, trade unionism. Let me ask you this question. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Alex. Let me ask you this no. question. In your opinion, and I asked this question to both you and Pascal, in your opinion, then. Is Lula a Marxist? Was he a Marxist or was he? truly a national kind of populist character with some Marxist tendencies? No. No is a short answer. I mean, he was, I, I don't, he, he was never a Marxist. His attitude also as a trade 
union negotiator, as a trade union leader, negotiator was always precisely that aspect of negotiation. Could always kind of find a deal, get good at getting people around a table. Now, that doesn't mean that that isn't necessarily an argument for why he wouldn't be a Marxist, but it does show a certain pattern to his politics, which is which is consistent throughout um, that period, all the way to his periods in office and to today. Um, and in fact, it's probably most in terms of stitching up coalitions, getting people around the the, 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 the table and um, finding an agreement. So his, his, his instinct, I think, is always conciliation, right? So he's never been a revolutionary since. Um, Alex, and, I wanted to make, yeah. go on. I'm sorry, I didn't mean, I mean to cut you off. I wanted to make a metaphor that I've made with several members of the Haitian community about comparing Lula to Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And I asked the question one time, I said, why was Lula able to have the policy success in this early administration that Aristide was never able to have in Haiti? And people were saying, oh, it was a different situation. And I made the argument, much to the chagrin of many on the Haitian left, was that Lula was more willing to recognize the real politique on the ground and realize how to approach the bourgeois factions in his opposition to cut deals than Aristide was, who was more basically interested in antagonizing that opposition with verbal bombast. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's probably a very important part of it. Um, even just to kind of add a qualification to that, but it actually is in a way it's kind of emphasizes your point even more, which is that it's not that Lula made deals with the opposition, it's that he brought the opposition in-house in Congress, right? Mm -hmm. So in a certain point, there was like 75% of Congress was part of his government, right? Um, which sounds insane, but that that is basically how it operates. What that means is that you are hiving off large parts of your policy agenda to these parties whether it is at the level of a minister, where you have ministers outside your own party and outside, and which aren't kind of fellow left-wing parties necessarily, right? So you're getting a kind of a cabinet composed of um, various different figures. And then at, like in Congress, you're having to do deals and, and do kind of, you know, promise spending, for example, to parties which whose interests are radicals, right? Or at least completely um, kind of tangential to what you want. And so what you have to preserve for yourself as a party of government that's the PT in government, and this will definitely be the case uh, should Lula win in a month's time, is that you need to just set what your kind of very narrow priorities, and it's probably unlikely to be huge, massive uh, reforms, because that's very difficult to pass, and to focus on those things and pursue them. And what Lula's decision, right or wrong, was to focus on social spending, social inclusion. Um, and that was, I guess, in inclusion through consumption. This was the period, of, you know, that's called, that's known as the kind of win-win period in Brazil, right? Um, the rich got a very much lot richer. That's terrible grammar, but anyway, you get the no, point. No, 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 um, I, I, I get it. And, and a I very much lot richer, and the poor got a bit better off, but you know, even a little bit goes a very long way in it. One of the most brutally unequal societies in the world. So. The, what facilitated that, of course, and this is probably different, I think, to Haiti, was that you had um, the commodities boom at that time, um, certainly, you know, from the mid 2000s onwards, that allowed the win-win to happen, right? That there was no, it, it, it wasn't a zero-sum game. And when there's a zero-sum game, then it's a little bit like, okay, are you saying the bourgeoisie are going to have to lose a bit? 
Are they going to accept losing in, in yeah. exchange for something else? I mean, no, um, not without uh, with a lot of without a lot of conflict and the ability to achieve some sort of leverage over them. Um, and that is actually what ended up being the sort of denouement of the of the PT government. When the win-win period ended, the PT couldn't find another way to govern. Um, so, what does that say about 2022, or rather, a PT government in 2023? Um, that the win-win are very much not there, right? Brazil is hardly growing. Um, you know, it's seen a regression in living standards. Um, hunger has come back to Brazil and, you know, one of Lula's proudest accomplishments. And, and I think, you know, it's very hard to, you know, I'm kind of critical of Lula from the left, but, you know, it's hard to argue against it. You know, he, he was very proud of solving hunger and he feels it very intimately because he went hungry as a kid and, and now 30 million are hungry again in Brazil. Um, you know, Bolsonaro has, and, and just to get paint a picture of like Bolsonaro, I don't think there's any need to kind of demonize him further. None of your listeners are kind of you know going to be like, well, well you know, let's hear this Bolsonaro guy out. But like, you know, he, he even, you know, was saying like him and his economic minister, you know, no one's no one's going to start. No one's like properly going hungry. It's not like people are begging for bread outside the, the bakery door. It's like, yeah, go to any bakery in like a big city in Brazil. And that is exactly what's happening. I was going to say, you yeah, know, I guess he's nonsense. never been to Sao Paulo. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it's, you know, nonsense. But um. That is, I think Lula, what he will try to do is for social spendings, cash transfers and so on, which will, which for him is kind of a, you know, a moral imperative, but much more important than a moral imperative because we know how to be cast aside. It's a political exigency. It's a political necessity um, to kind of bolster that base of his um, with, with that social spending. And I think if there, as long as kind of con other parts of Congress are getting enough money thrown their way for their own pet projects, then that can happen. Right. And I, and I have kind of a two part question. How much does 2016 still, um, affect voters feelings as far as like, you know, the building out of those stadiums and people pointing to like, well, this is why, you know, Rio looks like this because of, all this yeah, I, i'm not or, sure or that's I, just not how the political machine works in brazil no i mean i i'm not sure if like the kind of you know the build out of the world and the and the olympics was necessarily you know there were movements around that so like the 2013 the june 2013 movements mm -hmm. the kind of there was a left-wing continuity to that which was like one was like no invite they call but like world cup and then other ones who were like maybe took a different sort of line and trying to say, you know, we should spend on something else, you know, and, and, you know, spend on hospitals, not on building a new stadia and so on. Um, but I guess the story of that is part of the story of the left as a whole, that it went very much on the defensive with the movement in favor of and her eventual impeachment, then Temer and then Bolsonaro and all the rest. So that element has been kind of, yeah, somewhat marginalized. And, you know, it, it was, eight years ago and many you know if you think back to the kind of the, when the world cup actually happened yeah. so um the build out of those stadiums was before that even so you know we're talking nearly a decade now um and so that's not something that might necessarily be so kind of live you know it's in people's memories i think right um mm -hmm. but it's part of a but it, you know this is in the context of widespread anger at corruption right and so you had the revelations of the of, of the you know what was called the petrolum the the big petrol the big, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know the big massive scandals involving the state-controlled oil company Petrobras. Yeah, yeah, and various 
major construction companies who have operations all America, which this huge scandal spilled over into Peru, into various other countries. The U.S. Department of Justice was involved and so on, right? Um, and I think that kind of overrode to a certain extent or compounded, sat on top of the anger around the kind of spending on mega event kind of white elephants. Um, and that anti-corruption feeling, you know, I think it's important to, to spell out just as a bit of an aside, but I think it's important because the it played across all social classes, but in different ways. So the government's corruption means different things to different people. So for, you know, the kind of uh, the bourgeoisie, for the elite, the PT's involvement in this corruption scandal is, you know, evidence of a too close state business nexus of a kind of the failures of a supposedly national developmentalist politics that you need a kind of free market to ram through all this stuff. You know, you need to go and privatize the state controlled oil company, privatize all different sorts of utilities and so on. That's their kind of interpretation of it. And, you know, they, ah, this is the left being too state. And so for them as an argument against statism whatsoever for the middle class, whether it's small business owners or professionals, you know, there it's like, ah, OK, the state kind of gives handouts to big businesses, right, to, to kind of big construction companies we're having here where we need to struggle. Right. We're, we're here struggling. And, and um, this is why nothing works in the country. But for a lot of the poor and working class, there was also, you know, that that anti-corruption thing um, also did play. In a different way and and you know differentially across different publics some some are like well politicians are all corrupt so what you know at least at least pt and lula put food on the table for us right mm -hmm. definitely part of it but no but i think a lot of the left wanted to ignore this other section of the working class which was like no we're we're pissed off about this too but there the narrative was a little bit different there it's like ah the reason why the roads aren't paved the hospitals don't work or some crap and this and this classrooms overcrowded and whatever is because of corruption is because politicians are there stealing um stealing our money and what should be going towards public services so you know that's a kind of pretty radically interpretation of the problem of corruption to what the elite is doing and to what sections of the middle class are doing and how much there was an interview i believe lula does with uh, glenn glenn i can't even say his name glenn greenwald i believe when he's still incarcerated um, where he makes a comment about one of the reasons why he was so hated, uh, and I'm totally paraphrasing, was that the poor came up so much and the airports look like bus stations. Yeah. Yeah. Was that, how real was that sentiment? That is, is real. I mean, so the hatred of the Workers' Party called Enchipichismo, um, which is actually, you know, actually found out into wider anti sentiment and can be seen with like cold war um whose base yes. is you know in, in the middle class the middle and it's a middle class who feels squeezed and threatened by rising workers but also with the impossibility of ascension into the elite um and you know people have studied this and looked into kind of materially how this has played out the one section of of society which didn't improve so it didn't improve so much um over the kind of lulista years was the upper middle class upper middle class urban professionals who felt squeezed by rising minimum wages because it was a very steady 
and significant increase in the minimum wage, which caught loads of people up in the net, which is good, right? It's kind of rising minimum wage. The form, for example, the formalization of employment rights for domestic um, domestic servants, right? So maids and so on. Uh, large swathes of the middle class have access to. Um, the, suddenly they actually had formal employment rights, which meant overtime and all the rest of it. Um, so that acted as a sort of a squeeze on the upper middle class. They were the, that's like the hotbed, the nucleus of anti-workers party sentiment. Um, and so, and, and it applies to public spaces too. During kind of Brazil's boom years, it was like, oh, everything's great. But yeah, now we've got, you know, poor people who should be taking the bus cross country are now getting on a plane. Um, you know, the streets are now, oh, the traffic's terrible because people can afford cars now, um, all this kind of stuff. So the class loathing element is undeniable and, you know, completely unsurprising if you consider the degree of, of inequality in Brazil. Um, and so then that plays out in, in a lot of different ways, also with regard to, you know, kind of at a more political level, not just kind of at the level of kind of reality socially, the hate, you know, the people hate Lula because he is right. He's, uh, you know, he doesn't speak, you know, he makes kind of grammatical errors in Portuguese, doesn't speak properly, miss, is, is missing a finger because he got lost it in a lathe accident in, in when he was 19. Uh, you know, he's from the Northeast and the Northeastern, there's a lot of prejudice against Northeasterners because they were the kind of poor immigrants who moved into from, from, from the South and so on. Um, and, you know, that, that plays into the anti-corruption thing. Like, oh, no, he's a thief. Like, it's even, a, you know, it's not ah, Lula's a thief. Lula's a thief. Um, and, you know, they haven't actually ever found any evidence that he was personally corrupt. I think it's undoubtable that, like, he, he you know, he, he was involved in paying all congressmen for votes um, because that's the way to get things passed. Um, that's the way that his government operated. There was a big scandal in 2005 that people now forget about, but a big vote buying scandal in Congress. Well, um, didn't and he, he lose a few members of his party? In, he in did. That? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was a big that was a big deal. That was actually what was behind the the formation of in some ways of of, of Bessol, this party which I already mentioned um, mm -hmm. earlier on. And anyway, so obviously, you know, whether he's person, I don't think he's personally corrupt, but politically, yes. Um, but, you know, so what? So is the whole, you know, so is all of Congress yeah. effectively, right? Why is Lula hated so much? And I think there, the, I think the class loathing element can't be denied because it's like, well, look, this is a, this is like, this guy's poor, this guy's working class. Of course he's stealing, right? What else would he do? You know, like, and there's almost this idea that, oh, let's vote for, Let's vote for some like independently wealthy guy, because of course then he, you know, this this literally happened. This was the discussion that was happening when um, uh, Brazil, well, São Paulo elected its its governor um, in 2018, um, elected the guy who was previously mayor, who was elected in 2016. It was like, oh, this guy's wealthy, you know, so he's not going to steal. He doesn't need to steal, unlike Lula, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that that is definitely a part of it. Um, and I, I wanted to ask this uh, about the lifting people out of poverty question or, or a statement, you know, uh, during the whole pink tide, a lot of these um, leftist leaders were lifting their, their people out of poverty. It's a narrative that surrounds the pink tide. Why does Lula stand out more than, say, Hugo Chavez, who you could say did the same thing in Venezuela? Why? I don't know. Why does he? I mean, that's, I think there's obviously his personal biography, which is so compelling, 
you know, I think when we look back at Lula, when we will look back at Lula in the future, you know, his greatest success is not necessarily political um, insofar as, you know, as what, you know, in, in light of or considering sort of the, the, the ability to change Brazilian society, but more kind of biographical, if you can put it that way, right? It's just an incredible story. Um, and he's incredibly popular and, and rightly so on one level, just because Brazilian politics is so terrible that him doing a little bit for the poor is very significant in its own right. And, you know, part, and also I think that the hatred that he gets from the right is uh, in some ways um, indicative, I think, or rather strengthens the kind of romance of Lula, right? Because he's kind of this kind of pretty centrist figure ruled kind of, you know, didn't really uh, sway very much from neoliberal orthodoxy other than in, in a couple of measures, um, but, you know, increased social spending in a massive way um, using, you know, channeling the kind of proceeds of growth towards towards the poor, towards giving people more credit, towards access to university and so on. Um, and even doing that, which is like kind of the kind of progressive neoliberalism on a kind of Tony Blair level of, mm. of, of politics, um, you know, that that's enough. You know, and, and that made the right hate him. And the fact that the right hate him means that he must be a radical, right? <laughs> like, well, maybe that just means that the Brazilian right and such pieces of shit uh, that they don't recognize that the best manager that Brazilian capitalism has ever had is a guy that they decide that they hate and is the worst, you know, is basically the devil. Um, when actually, if they wanted to buy themselves some legitimacy, they would have backed him. Now, of course, that is what is happening um, in 2022. Um, but anyway... I wanted to ask a question about one of the policies that Lula pursued that really caused a lot of consternation in Haitian circles was that his willingness to participate in the UN occupation of Haiti with Brazilian, Brazilian military under the Minusta uh, authorization that basically was not only acting in untowardly ways in Haiti, they were raping Haitian women, engaging in all kinds of, of horrible effects. And it really put a bad stain in the mouth of a lot of Haitians who have been up until that point supportive of Lula and supportive of Brazil. I was wondering if you have, if you're aware of those allegations and if you had any thoughts on it. Yeah, no, Pascal, that's that's great. I'm glad you asked that because it is such, it is really important and completely understated um, in term in kind of general discussions. I think the some of the radical left obviously were critical of it, but the kind of general PT left you know, ignored it or it was felt like, well, this is, you know, Brazil acting on the world stage, doing humanitarian stuff. So, you know, that's good. You know, kind of the left's complete soft spot, blind spot on humanitarianism, which is which is terrible. And this is a great example of it. Actually, it is possibly the single worst thing that Lula did in office, mm. um, sending the Brazilian military off to be peacekeepers, um, but actually, you know, as Pascal has said, you know, rapists and, and various accused of various other crimes in, in Haiti. And what, because the reason why it was so bad is that that at a period where the military was kind of laying low, um, the military being a force that has been active throughout Brazilian history, it is the single most important player throughout uh, all of Brazilian history. Um, as a force of internal repression and sometimes uh, as a force which seeks to rule directly as during the, the dictatorship, which ran from uh, 1964 to 1985. Um, the dictatorship was kind of late, the dictatorship, the military was laying sort of low 
um, during that period. There was sort of an accord with Lula, like, okay, you don't try to clip our wings too much. We don't, we're not going to kind of interfere in politics. You know, we just want our privileges. We just want our like enormous pension checks, basically, um, at least for the, you know, the, 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 the military officers, of course, not rank and file. Um, but the, what that did, what the intervention in Haiti did was massively increase the military's prestige and their sense that they can, um, that they, you know, have somehow a, a right to intervene in, in Brazilian affairs and strengthen their self-conception as, you know, saviors of the fatherland. And there's a much more kind of practical material impact of this as well, which is that the, you know, so-called peacekeeping, humanitarian peacekeeping policies that they and practices that they carried out in Haiti were then brought home um, and they were brought mm. home into the kind of violent policing uh, operations which they've uh, overtaken in many instances especially in Rio over the past decade. I was going to um, ask so, some of them in Rio right now as parents exactly. too right. So the so that military so that so what they learned there in Haiti was then kind of applied domestically and uh, you know it, it's it's an old story a story that gets repeated um, across a lot of modern history, right? Um, of effectively the the tools of of implemented and and honed in in colonial oppression then come home and and are implemented uh, domestically. Um, yeah. And you know this is this is actually kind of funnily enough an, another case of it. So you know it was it was disastrous. Um, and the general leading that now is really strongly behind Bolsonaro. Um, so yeah, um, a disaster for Haiti and a disaster for Brazil. Bolsonaro, let's just say, I'm asking the question as we're as we're wrapping up. Let's say he does not win uh, come October 31st, and is he have the power behind him to have a January 6th moment? Um, yes, a January 6th moment, and I, I mean by that I think we're all on the same page and understanding that as not even really a serious coup attempt, but um, a lot of and in a Brazil in which in which it's there's just a general higher level of violence, um, increasing levels of political violence, um, that can get pretty messy um, because he does have, um, you know, 30% of the country pretty solidly behind him. His hardcore base is probably a good 15%, 12% of the population, and he has a lot of support. Um, you know, the mil knowing what exactly where the military stand with him. It's hard. It's kind of almost an exercise in criminal criminal criminalology, um, and kind of knowing what's going on there, you know, and oh, to what extent do junior officers are they more radical pro Bolsonaro than you know, etc. We we don't know, right? Um, what we do know is that the military is really keen on maintaining its prestige and its privileges more than anything, right? It wants to continue being seen seen as um, you know the kind of savers saviors of the nation, and so and guarantors of the constitution as well, which is also kind of, you know, deeply problematic in what is supposedly a democracy. Um, they are also a little bit, they've always been kind of reluctant since redemocratization to get too much involved in politics and to be exposed in any way, right? You get involved in politics, you fall foul of the same kind of mistrust and distrust in politics that afflicts all other parties and institutions. So well, let's not get, let's not get our hands too basically um at least at a kind of political um so we don't know how how they will behave but i don't think the military will will would back a coup because i think that would that would be um that would be too damaging to their kind of long-term interests um and it's important to note as well that they are so um i don't know what do you call it like I, can i call it yank cucked 
um, they are they they uh, you know they just look up and both ideas in general you know just look up to the uh, <laughs> look up to the United States and and um, you know have integrated their high command into the into the U.S. is they use they've allowed the U.S. to use a, a, an important um, air force base in, in, in the Amazon and so on and so the fact that the U.S. has been very clear and Biden administration is like we're going to recognize the the winner of the election immediately there's not going to be any messing around you know obviously don't like the u.s's supervisory role over latin american politics but at least in this case it's um you know in favor of democracy um so i you know i, I don't the military not going to support a coup the military police which is a force which is organized on a state level but which is a you know fully militarized police force a legacy of the dictatorship and whose numbers outnumber that of the army are very pro-bolsonaro and i think that uh, you know if there's even kind of small police mutinies in certain places that could be very mm. chaotic and very violent and bloody so i mean you know, i hope i don't think that will happen but it is a, i mean it's been a continuing possibility um so i don't know you know i think this is um and i think i, I think i might have said this at the start or maybe this was all fair so let me repeat it but you know the, I, uh, we did yeah but you know the why a lot of people voted Lula in the first round, which I did as well, and it's something that I wouldn't normally have done, um, was because, like, let's get this thing over with, right? Let's try to get him an absolute majority in the first round. Um, and he didn't because he only got he got 48%, which is close, mm -hmm. but Bolsonaro did much better than expected. So Bolsonaro there was expected to be a 10 to 15 point gap between the two. In fact, you know, it ended up 48, 43, and that's much tighter. And so, you know the the idea of a kind of landslide victory, even a you know very solid victory like Bolsonaro achieved in 2018. So you know 55% to 45%. I don't think that's going to happen now, and that would have been very important to avoid any sort of violent litigation of the results on Bolsonaro's part. Say, ah, it was all fraudulent. You know that we can't trust mm -hmm. the voting machines. Seeds that he's been sowing for over a year now, and. Um, you know, in that context, you want as solid a, a victory as you can to go like, yeah, okay, look, may, you know, you can you can quibble about a half a percentage point that didn't go your way, but like if you've just been, you know, the floor has been wiped with you, what are you gonna what are you gonna argue? The the great thing about a first round rule of victory, um, that hasn't happened, and I think it's gonna be pretty nail bitingly tight in the second round. Um, I think Lula's still gonna win just because the maths don't work. You know, Lula will retain his 48% or whatever, um, and is you know fell a couple of million short. The gap is six million between the two, and so I don't think, you know, I don't even if like with all attempts at maybe voter suppression that um, Bolsonaro aligned Congress uh, governors might try to do, um, I still don't see a path to victory for Bolsonaro. But as I said, if it's something like you know, 50, if the vote goes 50.5% to 49.5%, right? And then there's like one percentage gap or less between them, that will be enough of a base to, for Bolsonaro to kind of litigate the hell out of this um, and, and violently so, and for maybe his supporters to kind of so storm the Supreme Court building and whatever. Um, so it, 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 it has the potential, yeah, to be, to be very messy. Final question for me. And this is to both of you. Again, playing make-believe. Lula wins October 31st. Is there a return to some sort of back to unified pink tide thinking governing because we have a, a leftists in Colombia, um, 
Bolivia, Peru, um, and and do and does this coalition start to have more environmental measures, especially when it comes to the Amazon? Is Lula going to start reversing some of the things that uh, Bolsonaro was putting in place in the Amazon? Yeah, I mean, actually, I guess it's important to qualify that as saying, you know, Bolsonaro wasn't putting things in place. He was taking them out taking of place. Out, right? So it was like basically like defanging all the enforcement agencies um, and, and also rhetorically kind of allowing um, them to, to run the herd through Amazon. I mean, those are the exact phrase that, that his minister, um, a minister, incidentally, I mean, this is just a just it's a, I think it's a good example. Um, this investor and Salis, he is, was one of the most voted federal deputies, you know, congressmen in the country in the election um, on Sunday. Uh, he won, I'm trying to remember the exact figures, but several times more than Brazil's greatest, you know, kind of most known environmentalist politician, Marina Silva, like an indigenous really? background, um, mm -hmm. and who was a, and who was a major kind of kingmaker in in the elections, kind of uh, eight, uh, twelve years ago, and so, you know, I think that shows that the kind of environmental protection thing is just not uh, a major issue for Brazilians. And that might partly be because the only really successful part of um, Brazilian business, but it, particularly kind of at an international level, is the agriculture, right? <laughs> um, beef. You know, beef, soy above all, um, mm -hmm. but various other crops as well. And and pork and chino. When China had a massive uh, swine flu outbreak and had to like cull loads of their pigs, uh, it was Brazil that was selling them pork, right? And and China does consume you know huge amounts of pork. So um, I think there might be an element of like, well, you know, this this is the section of Brazil that works. Um, why not just further them and support their interests? So anyway, that's. But Lula will will I think you know kind of return to enforcement of of. Um, you know, of kind of anti-deforestation and, and, and demarcation of Indian lands and stuff like that, indigenous lands. Um, uh, as to the pink tide, um, I think, you know, I guess it was called pink because it wasn't red, right? So what's even what's even a more washed out version of pink? <laughs> a salmon. Salmon. A salmon yeah. wave. The <laughs> salmon wave, yeah, I guess that's what it would be. Um, and it would be very much swimming upstream. Um, so, yeah, we're going to use this. We're going to use this, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, basically, like, Peru, you know, the, the, the government is so precarious there, it could fall yes. kind of any day. Um, Colombia Petro has actually been combative and, and taken on a lot of kind of establishment forces and uh, more power to him. Um, I think Chile is the, one of the most interesting cases because there you have this massive uprising, one which was a kind of at the, at the you know, one step from, from revolution, basically, you know, in 2019. And what... And I have to say, the kind of the kind of soft left uh, basically screwed them. Um, they, they screwed them because they they went for this constitutional convention, which um, the traditional establishment went and backed because it was like, okay, we'll concede this as a way to kind of get people off the streets. Um, and then what they went and did and went uh, wrote a kind of pretty progressive, pretty progressive constitutional document which actually at the same time has many problems with it. Um, so, you know, they, they kind of got rid of the second chamber, all these kind of breaks on democracy, um, you know, re really good stuff, inscribed loads of social rights, which, you know, uh, there's a problem with constitutions which have lo loads of social rights in them because 
you know, they're just words on a page and doesn't mean they'll be enforced, but whatever, you know, that they, they, it represented some advance, but at the same time, there were some very con, uh, contra, um, co well, contradictory and, and, and uh, controversial elements in that constitution. I'm going on about Chile, but just to make it one point no. really, which is that they um, strove to make Chile a plurinational country. Right. And if for many people who felt that kind of the country was falling apart, that just symbolized, wait, hang on, we're losing the, ourselves as a unitary state. This is just things are going to become more chaotic. And so it was this sort of, I don't know, kind of soft left multicultural vision for, for Chile, which um, alienated low, large swathes of the Chilean masses and they voted down the constitution. Yeah. Um, so Boric's there in, 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 in Chile. Um, yeah really up against it and um so uh, you know it, the, the kind of wider regional context of governments which are not in you know not in the strongest situation um and lula certainly won't be with the congress that he'll be up against and having to deal with in which bolsonaro's party is the largest party in congress now um means that combined with the fact that there's no commodities super cycle on the way means that conditions will be very difficult for, for that. And what characterized the pink tide was always pursuing the path of least resistance, right? Mm -hmm. Not taking on the power of Bolivia and certainly Venezuela. They weren't taking on, you know, the establishment, the kind of bourgeoisie. They weren't, they weren't really seeking any significant rupture. They always sought to kind of, okay, well, let's, let's see what we can do within this context, right? Without, without um, without seeking confrontation and fine while you have a growing economy and you know to distribute when you don't have that you need confrontation to kind of get anything done and if you're not willing to do that then um the possibilities for um you know even some kind of mid-size reforms becomes becomes very difficult because it becomes a you know a zero-sum game are you willing to take on the establishment? Are you to take on the bourgeoisie and say you're going to lose here? The track record is that they're not. So I'm not for any kind of, um, you know, I'd love to be kind of bringing good news or something here, but you know, that, that's I don't think that's the, that's going to be the reason. Well, but you know, the important thing that Lula wins, I'll repeat it just to just to just make one final point. Mm -hmm. you know, Lula winning is that. Um, Lula might represent kind of continuing Brazil, but it at least gives us the base for having some sort of democracy. Um, and I don't think, uh, you know, Bolsonaro victory would be very frightening, I think, at, not because it will be tanks on the streets kind of coup deal, but it, there'll be just a steadying wearing down of state institutions of all sorts, um, limiting Brazil's capacity for development and probably most importantly of all, um, increasing kind of restriction and shrinking of democracy in, until it becomes, um, well, it, it might retain some form of democratic, you know, shell, but the democracy will be completely um, evacuated from, from the Brazilian society. So I think it's still very important that Lula wins on um, in four weeks' time. Brother Robert. Oh, I my position is that because of the crisis that we see globally in terms of the economy and in terms of post-COVID, as well as with the situation in Ukraine and Russia, in terms of you know supply side with major food distribution, I don't see how either of these administrations, whether they be the pink tide or not, 
is going to provide the kind of economic largesse that will be able to, to subsidize large-scale programs that would make them successful right off the bat. I think that because of the global economy that we're dealing with right now, it's going to be making it difficult for everybody, regardless of what their politics are. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, Brazil has certain benefit, you know, kind of uh, smaller countries in Latin America. I mean, in terms of energy, um, you know, it has a lot of hydro, you know, in theory, with kind of a well-managed um, government, it should be able to have the capacity to, you know, not be so... Um, dependent on on the kind of global situation, but um, at a kind of broader in a, at a broader economic level, um, it ha Brazil has become increasingly dependent um, rather than you know increasingly autonomous um, as over the indeed over the the PT's period in power you know undergone severe deindustrialization, um, increasingly dependent on agro exports, um, and can maybe try to redistribute that a bit but yeah I, I basically agree with you pascal i think the the kind of global conditions are such that um, there's not very much to be expected from this it's effective of of, um, <laughs> of of retaining democracy effectively well we will be taking a deeper dive into this question of the planet of slums as mike davis coined it Aughts. That was part of Cuba's wedding gifts to us. Everybody got a book. Everybody got a book at Cuba's wedding that uh, was your book. And he felt that I needed the doom and gloom of Mike Davis and Planet of the Slums. So I started reading it the other night. So this is going to be a fun conversation to have in the champagne room. So while this show right now was not live, we will be live in the champagne room of course the chat will be on the screen and we will be taking your questions i'm sure you guys will have a lot to say maybe a lot to object to if you're listening to this show watching this show leave a comment let us know how you feel let us know how you feel are you from brazil and have your own opinion on what's going on there and do you think alex and i are being yankee pieces of poop for not liking you guys' hamburgers with chickpeas, garbanzo beans, entire carrot stalks, whatever the hell else you put in there that isn't burger stuff. Alex, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to the day when we can go hang out in uh, Sao Paulo and then you can watch Absolutely. a real Absolutely. deal. Uh, fun punk rock metal show. I'll show you a good burger. It's good. There are good burgers available. Look, take me to the Brazilian steakhouse, okay? Okay. We'll take that. me to the we'll, Yeah, we'll keep it we'll keep it simple. We'll keep it we'll we'll, we'll play to the Let's strengths. Keep it simple. Yeah. <laughs> Pascal, do you have any parting words? I really appreciate Alex coming on and clarifying these very complicated subject matters. Thank you so much. All right. Always a pleasure. This has been great. Thank you guys. Wherever you're watching the show, there are links in the description to not just Alex's book that he co-wrote, but also the show that he hosts, Alpha Bunga Bunga. Thank you. Don't forget to hit like. If you haven't done it, please hit subscribe. We are out.